I guess you could say I'm pretty technically savvy. I understand how DVRs work at the barest capacity. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter one of Mad Ship, The Mad Ship. <laughs> this is part one as well. It says that we're in spring and because of the title, probably can already tell that we are with Paragon right now. And from his point of view, he is on the beach as usual and Amber is there talking to him, which he is resolutely ignoring. <laughs> yes, in his childish way. He says, 30 years hauled out on a beach had taught him true patience. He would outlast her. He wondered if she would get angry or sad tonight. So he's upset about something or other, and she is trying to speak to him about going to Amos Ludluck. Right. I do also want to point out that um, before this, he talks about the setting that they're in and says that the air tastes of iodine, which means the tide must be out exposing the kelp beds just off the shore, which I specifically underlined because this is again another point to the live ships being able to sense things themselves and not just a memory of a sense because true, he's blind, so there's no way he can see it. I guess he could hear the tide, but the fact that he can smell the iodine of the kelp that's exposed, I think points towards it being his own sense and not a memory of a sense. Yeah. But not the most important thing. Just thought I'd point it out. <laughs> just more evidence towards that fact. Yes. Um, but as we said, he is resolutely ignoring Amber. Who says, Paragon, you are a hopeless twit. Why won't you speak to me? Can't you see I'm the only one who can save you? So she's obviously getting very frustrated as well. And he is still ignoring her turning his head away when she comes to approach his uh, figurehead. And she says, you are in danger, very real danger. I know you opposed me buying you from your family, but I made the offer anyway. They refused me. Paragon permitted himself a small snort of disdain. Of course they had. He was the Ludluck family's live ship. No matter how deep his disgrace, they would never sell him. They had kept him chained and anchored to this beach for some 30 years, but they'd never sell him. Not to Amber, not to new traders. They wouldn't. He had known that all along. But Amber continued on doggedly. I spoke directly to Amos Ludluck. It wasn't easy to get to see her. When we did speak, she pretended to be shocked that I would make the offer. She insisted you were not for sale at any price. She said the same things that you did, that no Bingtown trader family would sell their live ship, that it simply wasn't done. Paragon could not keep down the slow smile that gradually transfigured his face. They still cared. How could he have ever doubted that? In a way, he was almost grateful to Amber for making the ridiculous offer to buy him. Maybe now that Amos Ludluck had admitted to a stranger that he was still part of her family, she'd be moved to visit him. Once Amos had visited him, it might lead to other things. Perhaps he would yet again sail the seas with a friendly hand on the wheel. His imagination went afar. But Amber brings him back to reality with her continued story, saying, She pretended to be distressed that there were even rumors of selling you. She said it insulted her family honor. Then she said, Amber's voice suddenly went low with fear or anger. She said that she hired some men to tow you away from Bingtown, that it might be better all around if you were out of sight and out of mind. Amber paused significantly, and Paragon felt something inside his wizardwood chest squeeze tight and hard. So we have a view of Paragon in his childlike wonder and imagination going afar, hearing like, oh, this is what I was always thought was going to happen. I should never have doubted my family. They love me. They're not going to sell me. When it's clear to any sort of reader that is even slightly older or mature or has been in the world, you can tell that Amber's story is going somewhere. That she keeps saying that, yeah, Amos was pretending about this offer. 
but Paragon's just choosing to ignore all the language and just take it at face value. Yeah, I think what's really in- oh, sad about this is Paragon's hope that is being crushed. And I think it's the saddest because as he points out, he's been on this beach for 30 years. So he should know better. He should know that this is something that isn't a happy ending for him. And yet he has still has this little twinkle of hope that, oh, maybe they've changed their mind and they realize that I'm part of this family too. And I don't know, this, like you said, childlike sense of him, I think makes it all the more sad because he is crushed and he can't figure out why. I just feel really bad for him. And I don't know, it's, it's horrible what his family is doing, but I also think that ignoring Paragon's feeling side of this, we also have that look into Amos who is trying to play as though her honor is being hurt about these rumors. Right. But we know from reading last book that it's not really a secret that she's selling. So we found out how she's getting away with saving face, so to speak, about selling the boat by pretending it's just getting pulled away by the new traders, not sold to them. Mm -hmm. And you can see how prevalent that childlike manner is in Paragon with this next section where... Amber continues on saying, I asked who she had hired, and he stuffs his hands in his uh, ears and starts to hum and whistle and sing and try to go, la, 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 I'm not listening, while Amber's raising her voice and continuing to say that it was none of her business, Amos told me, but then I asked her where Mingsley was going to take you to have you dismantled. And she threw Amber out. When I stood outside and shouted that I'd take it to the Bingtown Traders Council, she set her dogs on me. They damn near caught me, too. And Paragon in his head is saying she was wrong. She had to be wrong. His family was going to move him somewhere safe. That was all. It didn't really matter who they hired to do it. Once they had him in the water, he'd go willingly. He would show them how easy it could be to sail him. Yes, it would be a chance to prove himself to them. He could show them that he was sorry for all the things that they had made him do. And I wanted to to comment on that thought right there. It would be a chance to prove himself to them, and he could show them that he was sorry for all the things they had made him do. This is where Paragon's worldview is kind of shown clearly to be slightly skewed. Yes, his family members had made him do pretty messed up things, Kennet has made him promise to do some messed up things. However, Amos has literally never seen him or visited him in her life. And I I feel like he thinks about it as a child would, where your parents are one big unit. They're not their own human. They don't made their own decisions. It just feels a little bit off of how he views the family. Because Amos doesn't know anything about what the other family members have done to him. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Just that none of the Ludlucks are interconnected in that way. And a lot of times when he comes back missing his crew, they don't know what happened. And because he is known as a crazy ship, nobody really, I guess, asks his account. And maybe he doesn't tell them the account of what happened. We don't know. Right. But yeah, there's definitely this sense of, oh, they they made me do it, but obviously they didn't I didn't do it the right way or they didn't like what I did now, and I'll get forgiveness. Right. I also underlined this section, but for a different reason. I thought this was a little bit weird because when we last left Paragon talk thinking about being sailed as a ship when Amber last talked to him about Mingsley taking him as a ship and just his thoughts in general of going back out on the water. He had more of a view that I remember of I'm going to sink myself. I'm going to kill everybody on board. I'm not sailing anymore. I have to die. I can't. I made a promise. I have to. I have to try to sink myself every time I go out on the water. There is no good sailing. He even threatened that to. 
Mingsley, I'm pretty sure, that he would sink and kill them all just like he did everybody else. So it's kind of weird to me that the beginning part of this book, he's more like excited about the prospect of sailing again and hoping that his family comes back to take him out and he wants to sail and he'll prove he's a good ship because of last book, his adamancy of I'm not leaving this boat. I cannot go back out on the ocean or I'll kill everyone. See, I don't think that's too much of a conflict because of the different personas within Paragon. And with this dangled hope, of course, it's not an actual hope, but what Paragon perceives as a hope of his family, you know, never going to sell him. They see him as part of the family. I really think that he would sail for his family until a mood swing hits. And then he's like, oh, I promised Kenneth, you know? Yeah. And as we know, Igret did die on the decks and the blood did soak into Paragon. So like there are some violent tendencies there too of a madman. So like right now, yes, he's in his childlike state of, yeah, my family's going to come back for me and maybe they'll forgive me for what I did. And I did incorrectly and I'll sail for them and it'll be perfect. But I'm sure, you know, in a half hour that thought will have changed. Right. That's a good point, I guess. Amber wasn't speaking anymore, so he slowly lowered his hands and stopped humming. And he asks a question, forgetting for a moment that he was ignoring her. He says, when I get to my new place, will you still come to see me? And Amber is all, is pretty exasperated, and she's saying, you can't pretend this away. You know, they're going to haul you away and chop you up for wizard wood. Figurehead, of course, shifts his direction and says, I don't care, it would be nice to be dead. But we go over the same conversation again of, we're not sure if Paragon would actually die if you chop him up. If you leave the wizard or the figurehead intact, what would happen? So Amber's not really sure, and Paragon asks, will it hurt? And of course, she doesn't know either. But she asks, when they chopped your face, did that hurt? Yes, his brow furrowed. Then in the next breath he added, I don't remember. There's a lot I can't remember, you know? My logbooks are gone. Sometimes not remembering is the easiest thing to do. You think I'm lying, don't you? You think I can remember, but I just won't admit it. He picked at it, hoping for a quarrel. Paragon, yesterday we cannot change. We are talking about tomorrow. They're coming tomorrow? I don't know. I was speaking figuratively. (laughs) Wanted to read that because it was kind of funny. Yeah. In a relatively gloomy chapter. It definitely gives us the feel of talking to a child, but I guess maybe not even a child, just somebody who is being willingly obtuse about what you're trying to talk about. Right. Yeah. Which is kind of frustrating. And it's really weird to read it from Paragon's perception or perspective because I don't, I even, I can't tell what he believes is going to happen because it's not like he's ruminating in his mind about, Oh, there, I really might die this time. He's just kind of going from willful ignorance idea to playful idea to, well, I don't care anyway. I want to be dead. And it's such a strange read, I guess, because I feel like in other perspectives, even with Paragon, we get a more in-depth feel of what the emotion is, what's happening behind the words being said. But here it's so apart from him, I guess. I I don't know. It's just a little bit strange. I kind of can't get a feel for (laughs) what he's feeling. (laughs) I mean, I obviously on the surface you can, he's obviously in denial. But it just, I don't know. Yeah, I think it comes down to that point that he's in denial. He's trying to not think about that at all. So he's just jumping from topic to topic, trying to get her to fight him, uh, trying to just change the subject and get her off this track of, oh, my family's selling me. Right. I feel like that's the main point of what he's going at is that he just wants to avoid that conversation and that thought So, yeah, it's kind of hard because he jumps so much. 
But it's really interesting uh, to me that Amber states the next thing, saying, uh, after after she says, like, I can't stand the thought of them taking you to cut you up, and Paragon's like, there's nothing you can do, who suddenly felt mature for voicing that thought. There's nothing either of us can do. And she says, that is fatalistic twaddle. There's a lot we can do. If nothing else, I swear I will stand here and fight them. It's very funny to me that she says that because we know the fool is for pretty much all of the last book of next trilogy or two books convinced he's dying. And he's like, oh, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Just full of fatalistic twaddle. (laughs) I just thought it was funny that Amber is taking the complete opposite stance here. So... Paragon is trying to be a realist now, as pessimistic as that is, saying, oh, you couldn't win the fight anyway, so there's nothing we can do. And Amber is saying, like, that's as may be, but I might as well try. But we need help. I want to act before they do. We need someone who will speak to the Bingtown Traders Council for us. Paragon asks, can't you? And she has to explain that, you know, I'm respected, but I'm not that person. I'm not a traitor. I've been here for a little bit. I'm just... A merchant, and that's it. Don't you know somebody? And he is silent for a time, thinks about it, laughs harshly, probably at his own situation, and says, No one will speak for me. This is a stupid effort, Amber. Think about it. Not even my own family cares for me. I know what they say about me. I am a killer. Moreover, it's true, isn't it? All hands lost. I rolled and drowned them all, and not just once. The Ludlucks are right, Amber. They should sell me to be chopped up. Despair washed over him, colder and deeper than any storm wave. I'd like to be dead, he declared. I'd just like to stop. You don't mean that, Amber said softly. He could hear in her voice that she knew he did. Would you do me a favor, he asked suddenly. What? Kill me before they can. He heard the soft intake of her breath. I... No, I I couldn't. And so he tries to convince her, please, just like, don't let me be chopped up. You have to kill me. And Amber is just very, probably bewildered by the request and aghast at the strength of that, of Paragon's conviction about it. Saying like, oh, don't speak of such things. And oh, the, the muscles, I should put those on to cook now on the fire. And is just trying to distract herself from that. And Paragon has to point out, you don't make sense, you know? You vow you would stand and fight for me, knowing you would lose. But this simple, sure mercy, you refuse me. Death by flames is scarcely mercy. No, being chopped to pieces is much more pleasant, I'm sure, Paragon retorted sarcastically. You go so quickly from childish tantrums to cold logic, Amber said wonderingly. Are you child or man? What are you? Both, perhaps, but you change the subject. Come, promise me. No, she pleaded. He let out his breath in a sigh. She would do it. He could hear it in her voice. If there was no other way to save him, then she would do it. He's kind of getting his wish. Telling her how he could die with fire. Says to add, oh, jars of oil too. That would make the fire accelerate too fast for them to stop it. And he's always expressed that wish to die. So he's feeling a kind of relief right now that he has that promise from her. Yeah, it's definitely, again, really sad. I think (laughs) this chapter is a lot of sad, which is funny because it's the first chapter. But... There is this kind of melancholy acceptance of, I guess, if the reality is that I'm going to go get chopped up, then I'd rather go by fire. That's much better for me. And what a horrific thing to have to think about. But I also do want to talk about how when Amber asks if it hurt when he was chopped before his knee-jerk reaction was yes, and then the I don't remember. Yeah. Do you think that it did hurt? Or do you think the hurt was from emotions from Kenneth for having to be the one to do it? 
I think it would hurt as well. Because I feel like we get Vivacia talking about touching the serpents and that hurting and things. So I think like sensations can hurt them, just like we've talked about how they can feel things. Right. Might not be in the same way, but I also think with the connections and basically the skill or wit, these bonds involved as well, I'm sure there is a significant emotional or magical hurt that is probably translated in your body to a physical hurt. So it's probably a combination of the two. And it's something that he probably does remember. And I think Amber is correct in this instance that he is burying this memory because this was Kenneth who was doing it to him. And I don't think he forgot his instances or his memories with Kenneth that much. That's fair. I think he has forgotten a lot, but I think this more recent trip, I don't think he's forgotten that much of. So yeah, I think it's a combination. What about you? I'm not sure because I guess I am on the train of, they definitely have feelings, both physical and well, they have, they have obviously emotional feelings too, but I'm like a really big proponent of they have the senses, so I guess it would have to hurt. But I don't know. I think it probably wasn't a lingering pain, if that makes sense. I mean, probably emotionally it was, but it probably hurt when it was done, but I don't think it was like yeah, for no days like, after. There's no healing. It's yeah, not like a no human. pain of healing. Yeah. I don't know. The whole thought process of if we separate him from the deck is he's still alive? Would he still work? Would he still be able to feel the other parts of his wizard would? Is there some connection there? I don't know. The whole whole thing is very... (laughs) True. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know. And we always try to speculate, but (laughs) can't find everything out. And so Amber is trying to ignore the fire and the oil conversation and what she knows that she will do, even if she disagrees with the choice. And switches to something of a similar topic, but maybe, you know... Safer waters. Yeah, safer waters. <laughs> she asks, they will try to move you in secret. Tell me how they would do it. And he kind of explains the, uh, the system that would happen, the highest tide... They could do it quickly if they're skilled, but there's going to be a lot of people there, so they'd probably know. And Amber's considering and saying, oh, I'll probably have to move my things into you. I shall have to sleep aboard. And then cries out, oh, don't you have anyone who could speak up for you to the Bingtown Council? Only you. She says she'll try, but doubts that they'll give her a chance because of those reasons. She's just a merchant. They would not have patience with her if she began meddling with their affairs. Likely, I would suddenly find I had no customers, or perhaps worse. The whole town is becoming more divided along old trader and newcomer lines. So she's very worried about not having anybody to speak up for Paragon, not being listened to at all, and especially with this division coming in with the satrap and the new traders, who knows who her allies would be now because they wouldn't have any thought capacity for her. They have their own issues. Yeah, that's true. And I think the fear is because she talks a little bit about some things that we learned last book. The old traders are going to petition the satrap to have him honor his promises and take away the land from the newcomers and just stop his meddling in a way that is negative to and taking away the promise his predecessor had. And so I think, especially with that kind of environment going on, it isn't the best time to come forward. However, I do think it's odd that she was willing to go to Amos Ludluck herself and try to buy a ship and is not willing then to go to traders and at, she said like, she would try yeah but i mean she's first trying to see if there's somebody that he knows that paragon knows that 
they could just like get to speak for them without her, which I guess that makes it easier. But yeah, I don't know. It's just like weird to me that we don't know how long Paragon has been icing her out and ignoring her. And I don't think it's just today. So I kind of feel like it's on a day to day basis with how mood swingy he is. Well, he's started ignoring her at the end of the last time we saw them. And time has obviously passed. We just don't know how much time. That's fair. So like in that amount of time, she had time to go talk to Amos, but didn't have enough time to go talk to other. Like she has a gossip network. She tells Paragon the reason she knows all the in-depth gossip is because she has some, she knows how to listen. So she should know which traitor families would work better I guess to talk to who would like get on their track or back her up I guess I don't know it just feels weird to me that she hasn't already done that I mean you also want to include Paragon in there yeah I suppose she's all about like yeah she will buy Paragon behind his back or send an offer but she approached Paragon about it first fair Considers him still a person. Yeah. Or a sentient being, at least. That makes me have another thought then. Why isn't she talking to the other live ships? We know. I don't know. We know that the other live ships have like a pact to save people and she doesn't. So I know that she doesn't know. No one knows besides Althea, really. (laughs) Yeah. Which like, I get that. But however, Amber thinks of them as their own person of their own people so why wouldn't she try to talk to them i don't know maybe maybe it's just trying not to be isolated from the whole community if you go down there and start talking to live ships the sailors are going to see her they're going to tell the captain who's this weird person but i would refute that by saying People come all the time to gawk at the live ships. I don't think it's abnormal for people to try to talk to the live ships or to be around the live ships if they're not part of the families. I don't know. Just a thought I had. Well, Amber laments the fact that she wished she knew when Althea was coming back because she would speak up for Paragon. And Paragon debates mentioning Brash and Trell saying Brashen was his friend, Brashen would want to speak for him, Brashen was old traitor. But even as he thought of that, he recalled that Brashen had been disinherited. Brashen was as much a disgrace to the Trell family as Paragon was to the Ludlucks. It would do no good to have Brashen speak out for him, even if he could get the Bingtown Traders Council to hear him. It would be one black sheep speaking on behalf of another. No one would listen. He set his hand over the scar on his chest, concealing for an instant the crude seven-pointed star branded into him. His fingers traveled over it thoughtfully. He sighed, then drew a deep breath. The muscles are done. I can smell them. Do you want to taste one? Why not? He should try new things while he still could. It might not be much longer before his chances to experience new things were gone forever. Of course, we end on a fatalistic paragonism. (laughs) Yeah. Back into his dark mood of... I'm going to die soon. Might as well try new things now. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation of like Amber's motivations because we don't get to see into the fool's mind ever. And Amber is definitely a different character or a different personality than the fool. So it's really hard to kind of predict or guess why or why not they do things. Yeah, I. it's so interesting. And it also brings me to the question of how being a prophet works, because we know that it's not necessarily something, at least from B's perspective, it's not something that is controlled and it's not something that happens all the time, although potentially it can with people there's like strings of fate that prophets can see at some point and considering amber is an adult and trained we'll assume that amber can seek out 
different routes of people's lives if she so chooses. However, why can't she see what's going to happen with Paragon? You know, like. I think she can and sees Paragon alive as the route to the future she wants, but needs to figure out a way to do that. Mm, That's fair. And is concerned about one. Amber is always concerned about acting in the place to make her effects known the, the routes that she wants to be, um, to be gone down because she's the prophet. She doesn't want to make those changes. She has to have a catalyst. So I think that's why she's lamenting like, Oh, if only Althea was here or do you know anybody else? So I think that's one of the reluctance. Uh, the, one of the reasons that her reluctance is there to like do anything overt because she sees Paragon as part of the future that she wants. That's my idea, at least. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. It's it's a little hard because each character that the fool plays has a lot of differences, I think, from each other. I think they're all facets of Beloved's personality. But Amber is so much more willing to be involved than any other iteration of Beloved, I think. True. And it's so strange to me. I guess not that strange because we saw the fool previously try to interfere with King Shrewd's history with his path of him dying. Fool wanted King Shrewd to be able to live a little bit longer. Um but that was really the only thing that Fool stepped in on and openly stated that they were trying to like actively change fate. And then here, Amber is so adamant that like fate doesn't really matter when it comes to Paragon. They've really like found sympathy for Paragon and want Paragon to live on in happiness or as close to happiness as Paragon can have. And then forevermore there's this fatalistic that's what the path is that's what we have to follow i'm dying which is odd because i think it's fair to say that amber successfully changes the path or at least gets the path to go where beloved ultimately wants the path to go and then to turn so fatalistic next chapter is so or next series is so kind of weird I feel as though next series is slightly different where the only path forward that's the best has the fool dying. And this one has no bearing on Amber's goodwill, I feel like. They like don't know and it's not stated anywhere, but like with... With the next trilogy, we know that the fool states something, or maybe Lord Golden states something, that their vision is black after a certain point. Mm-hmm. So they like know that they're dead, right? So it, it seems like almost, to them, a failing of their ability. Or this is where the end of the road is for me. So we have to get to this point. I know this is the best, best path to take. And then my vision stops, so obviously I'm dead. Whereas this one, I feel like their vision is still going on past the conclusion of this trilogy. Obviously, they don't they don't think in trilogies or anything like that. Right. But <laughs> it there's a path forward after this as well, after these events and this crisis, I guess. So I think that might be the difference where Amber is feeling fairly helpless because they're trapped on Bingtown and they just kind of sent the people into the world. And then Amber's also very, did I choose the right catalyst, the nine fingered slave boy and and all this stuff. So I feel like in this trilogy, there is a lot of variance with the outcomes and some of them are way better than others. And some of them are still okay. That's what I feel like at least. 
I don't think we ever get an explanation from her of like, this is the exact path that we need to follow. And these are bad outcomes like we do with her talks with Fitz of like, you need to survive. Everything else is really bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, fair. so so I feel like in this one, there's just a little bit more shuffle. There's just a little bit more chance involved. And maybe that's where her desperation comes in to like, I know I need Paragon to survive. I have no way forward to that point at, at this time. So I need to figure out some way. And she's just clawing at any opportunity, but also trying not to get too involved. I don't know. That's my read on her at the moment, at least. Fair. And comparing to the next trilogy. Yeah. I don't know. Because it's always, yeah, since, since we don't know she's the fool, it's always interesting to compare the two personalities because we get the fool and Fitz one-on-one talking about the catalyst, the prophet, and the way forward. Yeah. Because Beloved desperately wants Fitz to understand and thinks they're explaining stuff really well, which they are to the reader, but Fitz just can't grasp. So it's frustrating for us too. But with Amber, we don't get any of that insight. No one's close enough to her, and Amber doesn't want to get that close to anybody else. I mean, they are friends with people, sure, definitely. But there's not that connection with Fitz. Right. There's definitely still that hints of the fool's way of talking about things around the thing that they want to say and then making kind of a riddle out of right things. But yeah, I would agree that the deeper talks of kind of laying it bare as much as they are able to, and then saying, this is what I'm trying to tell you, but it's such an abstract concept that I don't know how to put it in better words. Yeah. And there's no fits. <laughs> frustratingly dense going like, say it to me plain fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Interesting start to the book. We get the serpents and then we get Paragon. I think the next couple chapters we jump around as well, just kind of checking in on all of the characters, but that ends chapter one for Madship. Yeah. I think what's really interesting to me about this and I guess last, um, the prologue, not the last chapter, um, is that even though this is the beginning of the second book in a trilogy, there so far hasn't been a ton of, like, information about what happened last book. There's no... Uh, yeah, you just know wait till I mean? next chapter. Yeah, no, next chapter is really bad. <laughs> but I'm just saying, I think it's really weird that the prologue and chapter one, there's no, like, just like earlier when this happened or whatever. There's, like, little touches, I guess, I feel like maybe maybe I read this chapter multiple times over the past couple weeks because we had that break, or I'm just actually remembering remembering this correctly. But I feel like this topic, or at least a lot of these conversations, have happened in the past book. It's just all kind of condensed into one chapter here. Yeah, like we talked about the satraps uh, delegation from the old traders. We talked about the. Uh, Amos Ludluck and Mingsley being shipped away. I think it's just presented in a very well done format. Yeah, where it doesn't feel chapter. like it's just running yeah. down what happened last book. And I think as opposed to like next chapter, there's a lot more. These are the three paragraph recaps yeah. of what happened. It's a good point. It's more these characters have not necessarily talked about these details, I guess the Mingsley stuff, yes, but like the satrap details is not something that we've heard from these characters. Right. And so we're seeing a more objective point of view of that happening. But yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting because I think, especially in fantasy books, you normally have the dense, like, first five chapters are just, and then last book, we had this happen. <laughs> and it's like, okay, we get it. We just read it. <laughs> And here we are with this character who is the son of the king and who... <laughs> yeah, as you may remember from another book. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I think that's like publishers or editors wanting that in there. Right. But still, I, it's yeah. annoying. The idea is who, you want... Who picks up like the second book of a trilogy and is like, oh, this is my favorite book. <laughs> I'll start here. To be fair, I have on bigger like 
not, I don't think this series would do well with it, but I have before been reading a series of like five books and gone from three to five on accident and not known. Yeah. I feel and then like, like halfway through the book realized why I didn't understand who these people were. <laughs> I feel like publishers really need to write better signs and like descriptions on the book covers about what series they're in, what book number it is. Cause why is the book number so hard to find? It's impossible. <laughs> like, I mean, sometimes it's not, but most of the time I feel like I'm looking for a sequel and it doesn't have the number two or I'm looking for the like tr- try trilogy. I don't know. I'm looking for a not number one and I cannot tell which one is which because I don't know the title orders. I've often had to go to the newest published book that is by the same author probably in the same series and flip to like the title page and see like other books that were printed. Yes. (laughs) Just make sure. (laughs) I don't know. So we'll get some more recap in the next chapter here. (laughs) But this one was uh, pretty well done. Kind of eased you into it. Yeah. It's always a joy to read about Paragon, I think, for me personally, I guess. I know he's very depressing and sad, but it makes me think about Fitz, so. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why Amber likes him so much. Probably. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week. If you have any questions or thoughts on Paragon that you want to share with us or Amber, please let us know. You can email us directly at isfitshappy at gmail.com. Or you can message us or comment on any of our posts on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where it is fits happy for all of those. And we also publish our episodes to YouTube, so feel free to comment on those episodes as well. Thanks so much. See you next week. now we are going to talk about some things that you guys have brought to our attention. Um, We're actually going to start with something that was brought to our attention a little while ago, but I forgot to include it last week. So we're going to talk about a Facebook comment that we got that is a correction from Bastion on episode 150. We had made the comment, we were, I guess we were talking about how in order to be changed by an elderling, you had to ingest something. And yeah. uh, the reason that Malta was able to be changed is because she ingested the cocoon air or whatever. And we had talked about how we weren't sure how that was possible because we don't remember or how that was possible for Selden to be affected then because he wasn't there. Yeah, we were just like, Debating about that, we had a couple comments uh, right in, and we just weren't sure. We just didn't have very solid knowledge on the Rainwild Chronicles at the time. Right. Um, so we weren't 100% sure if how it all worked together and how it would explain Rain, Malta, and Selden being touched by Tatangula because we didn't know who was where. And Bastion thankfully wrote in and set records straight that Selden was there. He is the one who got um, Rain to help Malta when she was trapped in the city. And he was the one holding the lever to open the sky slash door thing to make sure that Tatangula got Sun to be able to hatch. Yeah. Bastion says he needed to hold some sort of lever or something. I don't exactly remember what it was supposed to do, but it was supposed to be around there. So. Uh, Rain and Selden were in the room and Malta was trying to open up the sun roof, basically. Yeah. So Malta is the only one who wasn't in that area, but she did have a head wound, which Cookie Baker also remarks on as a reply to that comment. And that's probably where the crest comes from that she has later when she's changed because she has a head wound there and Malta escapes on foot while Tintagla saves Rain and Selden. So yeah. they have much closer contact with Rain and Selden in those two, which explains Selden's transformation. Yes. So I did want to correct that because I was under the impression Selden wasn't there and I was incorrect. So <laughs> so thank you, Bastion and Cookie Baker, for the comments to give us a little bit more clarity on that event. We also had a comment on Instagram on episode 152, our prologue, 
from Melissa, just speaking on the fact that we have touched on before, but we haven't brought up and talked about lately because serpents have been reintroduced into our conversation here. Melissa comments that there are probably plenty of other serpent tangles out there because it's presumably a very vast world and this can't be the only cocooning grounds. And it can't be the only place that dragons are missing because of the big cataclysm. But we don't hear about anything. And I really don't know because I was of the opinion to begin with that there were definitely other serpents and cocooning grounds out there just because there's a ton of other elderling cities and civilizations and places that we don't see in this world. But at the same time, the serpents in Malkin's Tangle have traveled from warm water to cold water back to warm water, and they are very far away. So I I don't know if they started near the equator on one side of a globe and went up over like the Arctic and then came back down towards the equator of the other. What's going on? Because it, that journey just makes it seem like... They traveled a long way and all of the serpents that they met should be going to this one cocooning ground. So it's really hard to say. But logic says in my mind that, yes, Melissa, you're right, that there should be other cocooning grounds. I will say that I'm pretty sure it is mentioned by a dragon that there were multiple cocooning grounds because they say something about how the elderlings built up cities around that area And it was a big honor to be able to help lead the serpents to be cocooned. And I think it's talked about in plural, not just one space. It definitely makes sense with silver being a resource in multiple places that there would definitely be silt with silver in it to help cocooning. But I do also want to say that in real life, um, eels specifically, like... 90% of eels go to one place to go from young eel to adult eel. And there is another area of the world where they have found that eels do this. And this is all like very recent. I'm very into eels. I don't know. But you hate the serpents. I I don't like the serpents, but I do like eels because they have been a mystery for a very long time because nobody has been able to figure out how they age and reproduce. Anyway, they found out very recently um, some areas and there's only t- two and like one is like a very small population and the rest of the world's eels all gather to one place. So it wouldn't be that weird for there only to be one or two, um, places, but in my mind, <laughs> but also I do think that there's, I'm pretty sure there's contextual evidence in the books to there's prove multiple. Yeah, that there are multiple there. So, yeah, that is a good point that they should be in contact with other serpents. But I guess because there is only two dragons with one being in a cocoon, the other being wrapped in ice, I guess all the other serpents are just out of luck because they they weren't from the right area. They probably all die out or become animals, basically. Yeah, which is interesting to think about. Long term, because new serpents are going to be born, which means they will have to yeah. like they will have memories and know the way of the serpents, and then there will just be really big serpents out there that are animals and not. But they'll also be really really old, so we don't really know the lifespan of them. Obviously, they can live centuries, right? <laughs> but will they be? Will they slow down with age, or are they just going to keep growing? I don't know. Maybe we'll get a future book of like five, six hundred years in the future and there's like dragons and stuff. But then there's these like sea monsters <laughs> that aren't thinking at all. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, too, that I think about. And this is a very weird tangent, which number three. Uh, <laughs> but I just think about what that means for future baby serpents. But also... Would people be able to kill the animalistic serpents? Because I feel like dragons are going to have a thing about protecting the young. And it's you can't really tell when a serpent is attacking your ship. Is this a mindless one or going to be a dragon? And so will people refuse to try to kill them because they're worried about dragons attacking their ship? 
or no? All things to think about. <laughs> Be a little black market for serpent parts. Yeah. Fresh serpent. They're young. So you yeah. know that they have better stuff. Or really old <laughs> and large. <laughs> True. I think we also had a message from Amir on Instagram who wrote in to say that in addition to our conversation about like marrying into different trader families and potentially a family getting two ships, that at the end of this trilogy, the Vestrits kind of have two, with Wintrow being the captain of Vivacia and Brashen not rejoining his family. So Brashen and Althea are with the Paragon. And I guess it kind of happens that they have two, but I also feel like the Vestrits have zero at the end of this because Wintrow really isn't a Vestrit in his acting role in the Pirate Isles. At least I don't think of him as one, really. He's just Wintrow the pirate now. Yeah. (laughs) Like, he doesn't help the family with shipping or, you know, give them money, I don't think. I mean, maybe he does. We don't really know the dynamics afterwards. But also, Brashen, yes, doesn't re-enter his family, but he also isn't really a Vestrip because I don't think the I don't think Paragon is accepting of like, hey, I'm part of the Vestrits now because we have to remember that the live ships are people too. So it's not just who owns what ship, it's what the ship kind of wants too. I don't know. I I feel like, yes, technically you could say the Vestrits do have claims to two of them, but I don't know if the Vestrits have two live ships in their family. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think... My train of thought is, yes, technically they have two, and it'd be interesting to see how in the old world that would right, have worked yeah. out. But because by the end of this book, things are so different, and the old traders as a whole have kind of accepted change and are evolving to allow more people on the council and kind of like have a more level playing field and less hierarchy. I mean, it's still there, obviously, but I think it's not the same as what we were imagining of two family or one family having two ships because things are just so different by the end of the book. Right. Especially like in 40 years after the end of this trilogy, almost all of the live ships are going to be dragons anyways. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I don't know. Very, but I do think that is a good point, but technically we do see it happen, but it is also in the dawn of a new era. True. True. So thank you guys for writing in and having those interesting thoughts, correcting us and giving me the chance to talk about eels. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Your hidden passion. My hidden passion. It's so weird. (laughs) They're gross, but yes, the mystery was cool. Anyways. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I do want to preface. I don't think eels are cute or fun, but I just enjoy learning about them. Anyway, thank you guys for writing in and I look forward to hearing your guys' theory next week.